Welcome to a new episode of Forward, a podcast where we meet researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. I'm your host, Allison Innes. Like most people, you might be playing a lot of games these days. Board games, video games, or games on your phone. But have you ever thought about how those games communicate meaning? I spoke with today's featured researcher, Dr. Jason Horlick from Brock's Center for Digital Humanities, about how games communicate meaning and even propaganda to players. Listen on to hear more about Animal Crossing, Call of Duty, and the field of game studies. Joining me virtually today is Dr. Jason Horlick, Associate Professor with Brock's Center for Digital Humanities, where he teaches in both the game and interactive arts and science programs and is currently the Center's Director. Jason holds an MA in English and Film Studies from Wilfrid Laurier University and a PhD in English from the University of Waterloo. His research interests have included heroism and immortality in video games, multimodal rhetoric, and the psychological function of digital media. He has joined me today to talk about his research and his 2019 book, Multimodal Semiotics and Rhetoric in Video Games. So welcome. Hey, Allison. Thanks for having me. I am glad that you could join us today. Um, so you have a background in English, which we might associate with studying things like, I don't know, Dickens and Jane Austen and that kind of thing. Um, what is the connection between studying English and video games and kind of what what drew you from uh, from English into into digital media? Yeah, so that's a good question. I was initially interested in post-colonial literature when I started my PhD. Um, and I'm still interested in that. But as I went through my coursework, I took a, a really important course on propaganda. And uh, in that course, we were given a lot of flexibility with our objects of study. And I'm somebody who's been playing video games my whole life. And at the time, there were it was this Call of Duty uh, Modern Warfare franchise, which is like a first-person shooter video game. And uh, it occurred to me that it was very much an example of uh, pro-U.S. military propaganda, where the players are encouraged to not only, um, you know, kill terrorists but also the the narrative frame of the game really i think valorized um, military intervention in afghanistan and kind of the middle east in, in general so mm -hmm. that and i looked at some uh, screenshots from the game and they really tried to make it as quote unquote realistic as possible in terms of how the weapons look and sound and kind of the different uh, even some of the tactics that you have, but they didn't really focus on realism when it came to some of the obviously negative consequences of war. Um, like you don't win the game if you die, you just get back up. And while you are um, a hero in the game, it doesn't really look at you know what happens after combat. So it was this very sanitized, uh, heroic version of war, and that's very popular in within video games, of course. And so I looked at that and asked the prof I could write about that and he said he said yes the relationship between English and and game studies is really that an English degree prepared me anyways with the analytical tools I needed to interpret media so how do I 
pick something apart, whether it's a Shakespeare play or a, a poem or a video game, how do I pick that apart and look for different ways that meaning is conveyed? English is also great for teaching you how to build arguments using textual evidence, something that we're in sore need of <laughs> these days. Going to the text and, and finding evidence to support your argument. So sometimes people think that uh, the humanity is just, well, it's all subjective. Your interpretations are all subjective. And to an extent, that's certainly true. But the way that I approach it and the way, what I try to tell my students is as long as you have some evidence to back up your argument, then you're usually in pretty good shape. So even though the uh, a text, a written text is, is certainly different from a video game text, some of the, there's some overlap there with how you can apply uh, interpretive and analytical tools. Game studies itself must be a relatively new field, I suppose. Could you tell us a little bit about what game studies involves? Sure. So, yeah, you're right. Game studies as an academic discipline is is probably something like 25 years old. Um, the mid-90s is um, even, I'd say, up to the late 90s, early 2000s is when it really started to catch on as an academic discipline. Even now, if you look in Canada, there's only a handful of academic programs which are focused on games. And even then, they're often focused on the technical aspects and like game development, like programming and 3D modeling and animation. So game studies is, is, is fairly new. Uh, game studies just in general looks at games and gaming culture. So the people who play games and researches it from a variety of different fields. It is inherently interdisciplinary. So my background, as we mentioned, is in English language and literature and the humanities, but certainly people analyze games from a cultural studies perspective. Right now, I'd say one of the dominant trends is ethnographic research. So interviewing people who play games and kind of asking them their habits and trying to figure out that way. Anything kind of surrounding the business of games, the industry. Another prominent topic right now is what's called crunch in the industry. And that's basically where workers are encouraged, if not required, to work long hours, like, you know, 60, 80 hour weeks regularly. So game studies is really broad. Just basically, if you want to study games or anything kind of surrounding games, then you're in. Within psychology, obviously, a lot of the early work was in aggression. You know, does playing violent video games make you violent? And now it's it looks at, you know, how games can actually be helpful for mental health and, and well-being. So game studies is, is kind of just, is this really broad category that's that's somewhat amorphous. And like many disciplines, nobody's really sure where that line is of what counts as game studies and what doesn't. That said, although the discipline of game studies is new, people have been researching play and games for um, decades, if not centuries, for a long, long time. Um, but not in kind of like a really formalized way as an academic discipline like we see it now. You recently had a piece that uh, you had co-authored in the conversation about the role of video games during this pandemic and the interest in Animal Crossing. Did you want to say a few things about that? Sure. So we're seeing, not surprisingly, video game sales spike during this pandemic. People are hopefully staying at home. And video games are just a great way not only to pass the time and kind of escape for a bit, but also to connect with other people. So, of course, many games now are online where you can meet up with friends or just, you know, play with strangers from around the world. Animal Crossing has done just phenomenal numbers with, with its sales. So 
What's really impressive about Animal Crossing is that it's only for a single platform, the Nintendo Switch. For those who aren't familiar with the game, it doesn't sound like much on paper. You basically have your own little piece of land, so like a little island, and you are given a a mortgage up front by Tom Nook. And much of the game is really just trying to pay off that mortgage by doing menial tasks like fishing or um, selling turnips or whatever. And you can like buy, you can upgrade your house, you can upgrade your clothes and kind of build bigger houses. And so it's this kind of strange concept, but it's all wrapped in this really cute aesthetic. It's, it's, it's simple to play and it's just kind of this like calm, relaxing experience to play. So I guess it's no surprise that it's really, really popular right now. In the conversation piece, we were... We noticed this trend early. We noticed that game developers were actually putting a lot of their games on sale and, and or giving them away for free and tr- trying to do what they could to to help, I guess. And so we just kind of tried to, to talk about the different ways that playing games can help people, you know, connect, pass the time. And it was a little bit of an interesting piece to write because traditionally I'm used to kind of defending games and there's a lot of conversation about you know, how they're bad for you, how they promote a sedentary lifestyle, all the aggression discourse I already mentioned. And now I think it's becoming much more clear that there are actually some really positive benefits of, of games as well. You had a book published just last year um, on multimodal semiotics and rhetoric in video games. And I'm not familiar with probably half of the words in that <laughs> um, in that title, or I certainly couldn't, couldn't give a good definition of them. So I was wondering if you could unpack this for me and kind of explain what those big words mean. <laughs> yeah, it really rolls off the tongue, eh? Uh, <laughs> it sounds yeah. very educated. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll give um, a little inside baseball on how academic titles work. So what typically happens is there'll be like a clever title uh, and then a colon, and then what follows the colon is what the book or the essay is actually about. Mm-hmm. So as an example, um, I delivered a presentation on games that use smell, like sense of smell, mm-hmm. called Games That Stink, colon, a theory of olfaction, which is a sense of smell, in video games. So that's a very standard title. Uh, I couldn't, I'm awful at titles. I have no art when it comes to clever wordplay. And so I just kind of put this as like tentatively for the publisher, multimodal semiotics and rhetoric in video games, which is going to be what was after the, the colon. By the time I finally figured out <laughs> a decent title, it was kind of too late. And the publisher mm-hmm. was like, well, we've already put this on the books. We've already told libraries about this. So sorry. So that's how it came to the title. Now, what it means is the book is basically about how games communicate meaning. Multimodal semiotics uh, refers to a branch of semiotics which uh, itself is concerned with how meaning is conveyed. Um, Mm -hmm. So examples of of semiotic modes are like speech, text, image, and music. They're just basically different ways that you can communicate meaning. So we're talking right now primarily through speech and the auditory modes. Uh, even if this was done through video, then you'd have some visual content as well. So those are semiotic modes. And multimodality looks at how all those modes kind of fit together and how they work. 
And uh, a really good example of multimodality is if you've ever watched, I'm sure you have, a horror film. Well, what's happening on screen can often be, you know, pretty scary. But what really makes it scary is the music that accompanies it. Mm-hmm. And so if you ever like mute the sound on a horror movie, like automatically, a lot of the emotional resonance, a lot of the fear that comes from watching it goes away. Um, likewise, if you replace the scary music with something really silly, then it kind of changes the meaning of what you're seeing on screen again. So it's just kind of like how all these different ways of communicating come together. And rhetoric is just about persuasion. I take a very kind of classical view of rhetoric where uh, it's about how do you convince people into certain attitudes, worldviews, and actions. So what I was really interested in with the book was how do games use all these semiotic modes available to them, and games can use a lot of them, and how do they use that to create persuasive messages? This, this, this work came out of my dissertation where I was interested in uh, propaganda in games. I had some lingering questions at the end of the dissertation, like, well, okay, I'm saying that games are propaganda, but I haven't really answered the question, well, how are games producing this propaganda at like a semiotic mechanical level? So this book was kind of a way for me to answer that question. The, the goal of the book, though, was, wasn't just to talk about semiotics and rhetoric in games. It was really to try to bring together a couple of uh, disparate fields that is multimodal semiotics and game studies, which somewhat surprisingly haven't interacted that much. And because games have so many different semiotic modes available to them, you know, there's obviously images and music and sound effect and text. uh, It was kind of surprising to me that there hadn't been a book like this before. So part of academic work and research is finding a niche and kind of seeing what's not out there and trying to, to fill that. So that's what I was trying to do with the book. So you open your your book, your introduction, with an example from Civilization, which is a game that has been around for a long time, I guess, in gaming terms. I remember playing a very early version of that game myself. Um, so how, how does a game like that express social, cultural, and ideological values? And and how much of it do you think is intentional? Intentional is, is tricky. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. For the values and ideologies that are inherent um, the game of civilization basically has you start in something like 4000 BC, where you are, uh, you have, uh, you know, very little technology, um, and you kind of build up your civilization over time, up to contemporary times and into the future a little bit. So you go through, you know, agricultural production, um, you know, metal metallurgy. Um, you know, different technologies, but also different social and cultural movements. So, you know, at some point you can uh, institute Catholicism into your into your civilization or something, and that has certain benefits. So the game really has this inherent rhetoric of progress that closely matches what's sort of happened, uh, certainly in the Western world, I'd say, where it, it makes like the march of history kind of seem inevitable. Like this was a natural way for things to happen. Um, of course, we went through a period of, um, you know, religious devotion. Of course, we went through a period of military expansion. That's, that's just stuff that happens in the civilization. And so it doesn't really question any of that. Though some other ideological assumptions uh, are that there's, early on, there are enemies called barbarians. So 
obviously that's a, a charged term to begin with, but these are basically depicted as irrational, violent people who you can't really negotiate with. You can negotiate with the other civilizations when you play, uh, but you can't negotiate with barbarians. You just kind of have to uh, kill or be killed. So I think that uh, you know a lot of people in game studies have noted, well, there's this very uh, settler colonial, colonialist um, rhetoric in, inherent in the civilization games. Now, whether that's intentional or not, my guess is probably not, but that's in a way just as bad, if not worse, um, than putting these things in intentionally. When it's not intentional, what it demonstrates and highlights is how these values are just so deeply ingrained that people don't even think about them. They're just, you know, quote unquote normal. So that's, that's kind of civilization, I think is a really good example of how values are just embedded into the game, whether they're meant to or not. Other examples, again, are like the, the military games. So I remember being at a conference years and years ago and talking about how these Call of Duty games are basically pro-U.S. military propaganda. And um, it just so happened, it was actually at the Immersive Worlds Conference at Brock, I think in 2009, and just so happened that there was somebody who had worked on the game in attendance, and they said, you know, well, I've, I've worked on this, and we didn't intend it to be propaganda. And, well, I'm, I'm sure they didn't, but it's, you know, again, coming back to my English background, the text is the text. Uh, what's in there is... To me, what's paramount, not what was sort of intended by the developers. So I think something else that's important to note is that when you're working in game development, especially for these big budget games with teams of hundreds of people and they can cost millions and millions of dollars to produce, oftentimes the work is very um, segregated. So you might be a 3D modeler who just works on, uh, I don't know, like how the way that guns look. So you're not really thinking about the the whole picture. You're just, that's your job is to make sure that the guns all look realistic and, and good. And and that's that. So it's, game production is this, is this interesting realm where because the, there's so much that goes into a game, there's art and sound and narrative and programming, obviously, and more, that you can, most of the time, you can only really do one small part. So the kind of ideological messages or the kind of big picture messages in the game aren't always apparent to people working on them. They're not even apparent to the people who play them. One of the really uh, kind of sinister things about propaganda is that it works best when you don't realize it's propaganda, when again, it's just kind of normal. And so that's that's how I see the relationship between uh, ideology and games. Now, is every game political and every game ideological? Um, some would certainly say yes. I think that when you're looking at like abstract games, like, I don't know, checkers or Tetris, something like that, it's, it's not as readily apparent, but certainly when you're depicting people and countries and, and systems, then it's all, it's always inevitably going to be a political text. So then this is kind of where it connects with, um, some of the controversies that we've seen in the gaming community and the need for diversity of, of people creating and analyzing these things. Yes, exactly. And I think that's, that's really important is there's kind of two sides to the diversity question or two, two main sides. The one is representation on screen. So for a long time, especially within the first person shooter genre, most of the playable characters were white guys. And they all 
you know, were had chiseled jaws and they all had this very kind of stereotypical macho, macho view of what a soldier should look like. Um, that's certainly getting better now, but representation, even if you have diverse representation on screen, that's, that's great and necessary. It's, it's actually kind of a, a low bar to hit. What we really need more of is diversity in the workplace. So there's a survey that's done every year through the, uh, I think it's the, the IGDA, International Game Developers Association, I believe. Um, they do a survey every year where they look at things like demographics of gaming studios, and it's still it's still pretty miserable. Um, I think it's still about three quarters of the industry identify as as male, and when you look at the the uh, breakdowns in terms of ethnicity and sexual orientation, it's it's even worse. So the industry has a long way to go in terms of diversity, not just in what's on screen, but in the in the workplace as well. I want to come back to something that you mentioned earlier about game studies and the technical and looking at the um, the technical side and then the games and gaming culture side. So how how do the programs that you're involved with, Interactive Arts and Science and the game programs, how do they bring together both the technical side of games and that gaming culture side for students? Well, I think a, a well-rounded education in game design and even game programming requires both sides of that. So our kind of philosophy at the in the CDH is that theory informs practice and vice versa. So just to use me as an example, I come from a very, you know, tr kind of traditional humanities background uh, in English and, and film studies. But I, you know, make little games. Uh, I try to use, you know, Adobe products. I try to use the tools that my students use so that I can either teach them in, you know, introductory courses or kind of help them when needed. Now, luckily, they don't come to me a whole lot for the really technical problems, but it's actually useful for me as a researcher to know kind of how how it works when you're making a game. You know, what, what are the steps involved? Um, what's possible? What's not possible? So we find that even for the the game program, which is is very technical, it's joint with Niagara College, so they do a lot of work with tools, 3D modeling software, animation, programming, working in, in game engines. Um, even for them, it's important for them to know some of the broader contextual issues like representation in games, um, like labor issues in games, um, how to conduct good game criticism. So one thing that we've found but talking to industry is that for interviews for game design jobs, they kind of ask you to crit critique a game often and not just critique it but say well here's what I, I saw and here's how I might improve it or here's how I might change it. Um, they're asked questions at interviews where it really tests their critical analytical skills and so uh, even for those who are interested in just purely kind of technical jobs it's really important to have those broader competencies that can provide some context to what they're producing. I think that the students in interactive arts and science who receive a little bit less technical instruction um, although they certainly receive some, they're they're usually more interested in studying, for example, what's the impact of ubiquitous social media on the human condition. So interactive arts and sciences 
a bit more of a humanities based based program, but they're certainly still learning about the tools that they that they interact with. So they're learning like some mobile um, app development, uh, interface design, 3D modeling, um, you know, even some digital film production. And, and I'm drawing a bit here from my own experience before I started working with you guys and understanding what you guys do. Why should somebody who doesn't really play video games care about video games and care about what is being done in this in this digital space? Sure. So uh, one honest answer is that um, not everybody is interested in video games, and that's okay. Um, there's plenty of other worthwhile activities and in fact i wish people who played games a lot would read read books too and watch films and do do knit whatever <laughs> do other things too uh, but I, I would say that when we talk about video games it's important not to just think about them in terms of these like huge blockbuster games these like really violent fast-paced games you know, if you play like Candy Crush on your phone or you play, uh, you know, Words with Friends or Scrabble Online or whatever, um, that, all, that all counts too. So games are really this ubiquitous form. They're not that it's that's necessarily an important reason, but they're a huge economic juggernaut. Depending on where you look, there's certainly it's certainly north of a hundred billion dollar a year industry globally. And I've seen estimates for like next year that look like 120, 130 billion globally. Just to give you some context, I think Hollywood is around, um, you know, maybe like a, a quarter of that uh, or a third of that. So there's this really, there's this, this economic juggernaut. Even within Ontario, I think the last report I saw, there were 20,000 jobs either directly in or spin-off jobs of the interactive media industry in, in Ontario. So it's, it's, it's big for that reason. But I think also play is really important. Like we all need to play whether it's a video game or it's playing with your friends like uh, like Dungeons and Dragons or, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be, sports. Play is, is really a fundamental aspect of, of human life. And it's, you know, not especially now, I think it's really important to engage in play. So I, th I think that even people who aren't interested in video games and even in, within interactive arts and science, there's quite a number of students who aren't interested in video games. It's still a kind of a fundamental part of, of what it means to be human. And in fact, not just human, because we know that animals play too. If you have dogs or cats, they, they like to play as well. So it's this really fundamental part of, of life. And for no other reason than that, I think it's, it's worth exploring and worth being interested in. Thank you very much and enjoy your long weekend. Thanks, you too, Alison. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, and past episodes on our website, brocku.ca humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is by Serena Atella, and theme music is by Kalida Mam. The credits have been read by me, Serena Atella. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for Studio and Web Support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.